Well, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Jake. I'm one of the ministers here at the Hollows. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us for this time of gathered worship. Um, I'll go ahead and open us up in our reading that we'll be studying this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 6. So if you can have, have your Bibles, go ahead and open that, um, and I'll read that for us. One Sabbath... When he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, which helps to train us and guide us in your ways and reminds us of the truth and beauty of the gospel. I pray that we just uh, listen to your voice, that you would be speaking um, to our hearts, Holy Spirit, this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, we need rest. Eric, uh, Eric Prather, a psychologist at the University of California, says that sleep can help us manage stress, uh, make us more empathetic and creative, and better parents and partners. Good sleep has been even proven to protect against disease, improve life longevity, and mental health. Yet ours is a culture that is obsessed with work. Judith Slovitz, in the article she wrote for the New Yorker entitled Bring Back the Sabbath, she writes, Economists, psychologists, and sociologists have charted our ballooning work hours, the increase in time devoted to competitive shopping, the commercialization of leisure that turns fun into work and requires military-scale budgeting and logistics and emotionally draining interaction with service personnel. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Sadly, I believe Judith is by and large correct. Ours is a culture where sleep often comes second to um, achievements in life and work, to success defined as more money or more stuff or more unique and exciting experiences to share on social media. Uh, on top of this trend is the fact that rest is more than just sleep. We need more than a day off or eight hours of ceased activities. There is also this inner voice that keeps us going, pressing us on to do more and to be better. There is an inner voice that Judith names um, in her article, the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Now, I've been a Christian most of my life, and in my journey with King Jesus, um, it's taken a long time for me to name that inner voice and respond to it with the truth of the gospel. When I was younger, uh, things seemed so simple. The categories of right and wrong, good and evil, so tidy in their black and white boxes. And in this environment, a pharisaical attitude grew up easily. And I did a lot of good things. I went to church on Sunday, I read my Bible, I prayed, I, I tried to care for those I deemed were in need. But I did much of it out of a sense of obligation, as though I was carrying out these religious duties, um, frantically trying to, to secure God's love for me. 
But all it did was, was move me further and further into a self-reliance and a self-righteousness that masked my, my brokenness and fear with the sense that I had my life together. I knew my sins were forgiven by grace, but what about the sins of tomorrow and the day after that? Would God still love me then? And it seemed like no amount of work that I did could ease that inner voice. We need rest, a holistic rest that touches our, our hearts and our, our minds and in our bodies, our spirits, a rest that puts a, a, an end to that inner voice pressing us on to prove ourselves as worthy. Our passage today, it speaks to this rest, this rest that we so desperately need. In the Gospel of Luke, this is the third and final confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees on the question of Sabbath observance. In it, we not only see the meaning of the Sabbath restored, but we also get a hint at the gospel truth that Jesus gives us the rest we need. The Pharisees and the experts in the law, they had their own means of trying to earn God's approval, trying to earn um, his favor, but only Jesus gives us the rest we need. In this passage, we have an interesting interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. We've encountered these characters on several occasions throughout the Gospel of Luke, so you may remember these folks. Um, They are members of a Jewish party that exercised strict piety according to Mosaic law. They were concerned above all else with the sanctification of God's name and with the separation from all that was unholy. They were a movement concerned with the sanctification of every aspect of one's life. And to this end, they, they added their own laws as a fence around the written Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, or it could be a reference to the whole Old Testament. Um, and they created this fence to, to keep people from breaking God's law. They were not a numerous group, but they were highly influential during Jesus' day and were considered by many to be the religious leaders of the community. Now we see in verse 1 that Jesus is invited over to dine with one of these Pharisees. Now, um, I find it interesting that a Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner because in the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke's telling of Jesus's life, there's been two other times that a Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. And neither time goes too well for the Pharisees. Um, If you remember in chapter 7, a Pharisee invites Jesus over and is humiliated when a sinful woman comes in and shows Jesus more love and affection Um, in honor than he should have done as the host of the meal. Then if you remember back in chapter 11, Jesus is invited over for dinner by a Pharisee and the host becomes so amazed when Jesus doesn't wash his hands after, uh, before the meal that he launched, that Jesus launches into a long speech denouncing the pride and hypocrisy of the Pharisees who care more about their outward appearance than the sin dwelling within them. So why is this leading member of the Pharisees inviting Jesus over for dinner? I mean, haven't they had enough at this point? They're just asking for a fight. It'd be like inviting over that relative or that friend that you know is going to cause trouble by going off about his favorite conspiracy theories. Um, But I, I, I really don't think the Pharisees were gluttons for punishment. In fact, if you place this text in its historical context, we you can see that this group of religious leaders was actually pretty sly and crafty in their own way. Now, Jesus lived in an honor-shame culture. 
Dr. Randy Richards says that within this understanding of the world, honor is like a, a piece of pie where everyone has their own slice. If one person gets more honor, their slice gets bigger and all the other slices in turn get smaller. Because of this, there's no way to earn honor in this society other than getting it from someone or something else. And because of that, in the biblical world, uh, public questions were not necessarily about getting new information. Oftentimes they were more about getting more honor. So it was an honor game that was being played. You see this earlier in Luke when Jesus um, has a debate with one of the experts in the law around what the greatest commandment is. Um, the discussion opens with the expert's question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It seems honest enough, right? But as the conversation evolves, you come to see that this expert in the law already had in mind the answer to his question. He wasn't going to Jesus to find new information. He was looking for a way to take Jesus' honor, to humble this new teacher, this new rabbi with, with a new teaching that was catching, catching the attention of so many. This same sort of thing is going on in today's passage. Uh, notice verse 1 says that these Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. Then in verse 2, we see that Jesus is immediately confronted by a man whose body was abnormally swollen with fluid. Now, it's very telling that in verse 3, Jesus responds not to the sick man, but to the Pharisees. One Bible commentator notes, It is possible that the presence of the man with the swollen body was a trap set by enemies who hoped Jesus would break the law. Support for this is seen in the use of the verb apocrythes, which means answering and is translated in response here in verse 3. No one had spoken, so Jesus was answering the action or perhaps the thought of his enemies. It seems likely to me that the Pharisees had learned a thing or two in their confrontations with Jesus. After all, they don't actually say anything in this text at all. They weren't about to lose their hard-won honor. Um, instead, they put forward this suffering man in hopes that it would trap Jesus into breaking the law. Because according to their own teaching and their own interpretation of the Torah, it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath unless someone's life was in danger. Now, this man with the swollen body, his life wasn't in immediate danger. They didn't want to learn from Jesus. They wanted to accuse and discredit him. They, they wanted to take away his honor. Sadly, the Pharisees in this text and in so many others throughout the four accounts we have of Jesus' life are examples of what it looks like to reject God. Uh, we have a deep need for rest, to quiet that eternal murmur of self-reproach. That's why the Sabbath observance is such a, a universally attractive concept that even finds its way on the pages of the New Yorker. But there are so many ways that people try to find rest that are not only um, meaningless and, and useless, but destructive. Because in the end, only God can give us the external and internal rest that, that we long for. Timothy Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Church, uh, points out that there are actually two ways to reject God. You can reject God by rejecting his law and, and living any way you see fit. And you can also reject God by embracing and obeying God's law so as to earn your salvation. These are the religious and irreligious responses to God, each one a different approach 
to, to, re, to rejecting God, to finding rest, to earning salvation, and therefore rejecting the salvation that God freely offers in his son Jesus. Now let's take a moment to look at both of these responses because I believe they can help us not only better understand the gift that God offers us in the Sabbath, but also what it means to respond to God in the good news that he has for us in Jesus. Now, the religious response. This is the twisted self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees of Jesus' day who would judge and condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath while also plotting his murder. As it says in Mark 3, uh, verse 6, after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might kill him. So healing on the Sabbath is wrong, but not plotting murder? This, this religious response, it always winds up looking self-righteous and, and hypocritical because in this response to God, it's, it treats obedience not as a, a means of uh, an act of gratitude that is given to God for all that he has done, but as a means to use God to achieve your own salvation. God becomes not the good father who loves to bless his children, but a caricature of the boss who lords over his subordinates, dealing out report cards based on good and bad behavior. The moralistic behavior change of the religious response, it doesn't work. It does no good in quieting that inner reproach or in changing the natural self-centeredness of the heart. Um, Martin Luther, a reformer um, back early during the Reformation, describes sin as an inward curvedness, a propensity to always and only act for your own good, to be focused on the self over and above everything else. Now, this religious response, it only feeds this self-centeredness. You can think about it this way. Um, consider a piece of metal. Simply bending a piece of metal without the softening effects of heat will only cause it to snap back into place. Either that or break it entirely. The religious response to God does the same thing in individuals and in communities. This, it, it, it either adjusts the self-centeredness of the heart um, to, into expressions that are more culturally acceptable, but by and large unchanged, or it breaks the individual entirely under the impossible weight of perfection before a holy and righteous God. Putting pressure on the will, it may temporarily alter behavior, but the heart's self-centeredness and insecurities, they remain. This is why the way of Jesus was so attractive to his listeners. They had spent years under the burden and pressure of the Pharisees' religious response to God. But Jesus came and he said um, in the same passage that we read earlier, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The religious response, it's alive and well today. There are, there are many ways there are many who reject God, not by disobeying him out in the world, but by remaining in the church, doing everything asked of them, but still holding on to control, refusing to humble themselves as they seek to put God in their debt um, by, their, by their good deeds or their correct doctrine. This religious response can even show up in the lives of Christians who know and believe the gospel, 
um, one of the great insights from Martin Luther is that this religious um, response is actually the default mode of the human heart. That even Christians who believe the gospel at one level will continually revert to religion, operating at deeper levels as if they are saved by their works. Um, I think this is what was going on in my life growing up in the church. At one level, I truly did believe the gospel, that I was saved by grace. But at another level, I was basing my relationship with God on my spiritual achievements. It, it took a sudden and debilitating bout of OCD and Tourette's to bring me to the end of myself and to start me on a journey where I eventually came to the realization that not only am I saved by grace, but that every step in my journey with King Jesus is based on grace as well. But I know I can't be the only one who struggles with reverting back to the dangers of religion. Uh, Richard F. Loveless, a history professor at Gordon-Conwell, he once wrote, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians solid, are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. Um, but in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. What Loveless is getting at here is that many of us believe that we are made right with God or justified by, freely by what Christ has done but still act in our daily lives as though we are made right with God through our obedience to Him. This way of viewing our relationship to God is, it's not only unbiblical, but it actually, it creates a deep sense of insecurity that shows itself in pride, self-consciousness, def defensiveness, and criticism of, of others, all of which we see in the Pharisees. The antidote to this religious response is to continually return to the beauty and truth of our righteousness in Christ. Again, Martin Luther says the gospel is for us the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we sh should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. He had a very forceful way of speaking sometimes. Um, but wh why is this? It's because there's no going beyond the gospel in the Christian life. It's not only the means by which we enter into a relationship with God, it's also the way we continue to grow in our relationship with Him and learn from Him what it means to be like Him. When we rest in the truth and beauty of the gospel, obedience is not done begrudgingly or out of fear, but as an act of gratitude for all that has been done for us as we come to base our identity not in our achievements, but in what Christ has achieved for us. Now, the religious response to God, it highlights how everyone is trying to find rest from that inner murmur, but it's only um, one approach that people take. There's also the religious response to God, a way of rejecting God by seeking rest in a million other worldly things. While we don't find one of these characters in our text today, Jesus' ministry among the irreligious was one of the major reasons the Pharisees were upset with him. They didn't like that Jesus hung out with the outcasts and sinners. But what they failed to realize is, what, is that they were sinners too. You know, the, the dangerous thing about the sin of self-righteousness is that it blinds us to our sin. 
Now, the irreligious response is different because it oftentimes is very easy to recognize and to name. If someone commits adultery or murder, there's no question a sin has been committed. But this irreligious response can also be insidious. And in reality, it's just a mirror image of the self-righteous, this religious response. It's just a different strategy of self-salvation built on human effort. It all comes down to what you're basing your identity on. Because whatever you are looking to to find assurance or comfort, that is the thing that will own you. The thing you will worship. The thing you are looking to to save you. Even the irreligious are worshiping. They are also looking to things to build their identity on, looking to someone or something to, to give themselves away to. It goes back to our very nature. Another reformer named John Calvin, he noted that, that our hearts are idol factories. We're always creating things to worship other than God. And this is because God made us to be creatures, meant to depend on our creator. But when we rebelled against him and, and sought to make our own way in the world, we had to give that allegiance due to God to something else. That inner self-reproach, it rose up and we had to quiet it some way. The secular novelist David Foster Wallace said it well in his, his uh, a speech to the graduating class of Kenyon College. He wrote, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, they are where you tap real meaning in life. They will never, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. All the other things out there promising rest and peace will only and always destroy you, for they will never fulfill their promises. They will never satisfy because the things of this life, they don't last. In our hearts, they were made to rest in the eternal and ever faithful God of all creation. This is the promise foreshadowed in the gift of the Sabbath. The religious and irreligious responses to God are different, but they both lead to the same end, rejecting the eternal rest that God has for us in Jesus. In the true meaning of the Sabbath, we find the murmurs of a different way. One of the main contention points between Jesus and the Pharisees was the proper way to practice the Sabbath. What I find interesting is that Jesus never says the Sabbath should be done away with. And he doesn't argue uh, that, uh, that the regulations should be relaxed and a more uh, liberal attitude adopted. Instead, Jesus points to the fact that his opponents had missed the whole point of this holy day. You can see this in the conflict of today's passage. With his, his sec, with his question in verse 3, Jesus doesn't say that the Sabbath doesn't matter. He tries to bring the focus back to the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath. And he does the same thing by healing the sick man. This miracle also points to the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't throwing out God's law. He was fulfilling its intent, living into the meaning of which God originally commanded the Sabbath. Sabbath. 
So what is the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath? You can find this at two points in Scripture, which connect Sabbath to creation and redemption. In both these cases, we see that the Sabbath was not some arbitrary law, but a gift. God commands the Sabbath in Exodus 20, 9 through 11. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must, do, you must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Now, in connecting Sabbath observance to the creation story, God reveals that the practice of the Sabbath was about entering into our creationliness. Think about it. Did the all-powerful God who made everything that exists really need to take a break after his six days of world-making? If not, then why does it say that he rested on the, Sabbath, or the seventh day? Well, I think this creation story it, found in Genesis helps us to narrow down what it truly means to rest. If you remember from the story, God, God is creating all these things. And, and after he creates something, he pauses and he says, that's good. And then when he gets to the end, on the sixth day, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Then the next day, God rests because his work is done. A former pastor helpfully notes that this is what it means to, to rest, to be utterly satisfied with what is done. Who else can be utter, utterly satisfied with their work other than God? And if God is satisfied, why can't we be satisfied as, as his creatures living under his care? Sabbath observance was always meant to help the people of God stop and remember that they are not in control. It's a humbling thing to stop working. It requires us to let go and trust that though we aren't working, God still is. That though there's plenty of more things to get done, we can trust that God will take care of us. Sabbath means to rest in the Creator's word of satisfaction over each one of His creatures. You are good. Now, God also commands Sabbath again in Deuteronomy, but this time He connects the reasons for Sabbath observance to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, saying, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here we see that the Sabbath was commanded not only to remind Israel of their dependence on God, but to remind them of their redemption. The gift of the Sabbath was given not as a means to earn grace from God, but as a response to the grace that he had already given them in creation and redemption. This points out, the truth of this points out a false dichotomy that we often bring to Scripture. It can seem like the Old Testament is all about laws to obey, what to do and not to do to earn God's favor or to make God happy. While the New Testament, Jesus comes in and he does away with all that. But this is not how Jesus saw the Scriptures. It's, he says in Matthew 5.18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. 
Here we see that Jesus saw his own ministry as fulfilling the law, not replacing it. So how does he fulfill the Sabbath? Well, consider Jesus' second question to the Pharisees and the law experts. He says, And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They didn't respond to Jesus' question likely because he has pointed out their hypocrisy. They took this holy day meant for rest and they turned it into, into work. The rules they added as a, as a fence around the command of the Sabbath made it terribly difficult to obey. For example, there was a certain amount of steps allowed outside of one's home. Or you could um, want, pour water for your animals to drink, but you couldn't hold the bucket of water. So if you could do these simple tasks, if you could pull your animal out of a pit, um, why not ease someone's suffering on the Sabbath? The Pharisees' laws, they made no sense because they lost the storyline of the Bible. There were some who believed that the Savior would, that would come if only Israel would keep two Sabbaths correctly. But this misses what is clear throughout Scripture, that, that God, he doesn't save us because of what we do, but because of his great love and grace. He didn't save Israel from slavery in Egypt because they obeyed the law. Of course not. They, had, he, they hadn't even been given the law yet. No, God saved them not because they were lovely or special in some way, but simply because he loved them. So Jesus points back to the meaning and purpose of the Sabbath and fulfills it in healing this poor suffering man, for he restores the, the broken creation God called good from the beginning. And he recalls the redemption of God in bringing new life and healing. In their attempts to make sure no one broke the Sabbath, the Pharisees actually failed to obey its true purpose. The Sabbath was always meant to be a gift, obeyed out of gratitude toward our generous God. Now, the Sabbath is still a gift today, but I know rest is not easy for any of us. In fact, it, it might be more difficult to rest today than in any point in history. Timothy Keller, he points out four trends as to why this may be. The first is that more and more jobs are insecure because jobs and whole departments can be eliminated if they don't perform or turn a profit. Secondly, there's been research done that shows that, that people um, at the top of companies who used to make 10 to 20 times more as those below them now make upwards to 100 to 200 times more. And as a result, these people making large amounts of money are expected to work longer and longer hours. And if you don't want to, there's a whole line of people behind you just waiting to take your place. Now, at the same time, the folks on the bottom of the pay scale have to take multiple jobs just to make ends meet. So no matter where you are on the bottom or the top, people are being overworked. Thirdly, technology has had a big impact. With computers and phones, you can work anywhere at any time, which makes it difficult to keep work from spilling out into every area of life. This is what I struggle with. It's really hard to stop thinking about work when I have my phone in my pocket buzzing with a million things for me to do. And finally, the fourth trend has to do with a broader change in cultural values. In a traditional society, people got their meaning from family by fulfilling fairly prescribed social roles, father, mother, daughter, uh, brother. Uh, in these societies, work was not as important. It was just a means to support the family. But we live in the first culture where, where work has been seen differently because 
we, we make the claim that you define yourself by deciding what you want to be and attaining it. And work is often the place where people try to attain this meaning, try to prove their worth. Because of this cultural shift, there has never been so much psychological, societal, and emotional pressure put on work to be fulfilling or at least lucrative. Looking at all four of these trends, one, two, and three means it's that we're more desperately in need of work than ever before. Now you add four into the mix and it means it's more difficult for us to rest. We have less of ability to rest. That inner voice of self-reproach has never been louder. Now I must confess that recently I haven't been practicing Sabbath as wholeheartedly as I should. With all the changes going on with the church, I've taken on more responsibilities and because of that, it's become harder to rest. Now, Judith Schulwitz is wise in her article when she writes that it takes more to stop working than to not work. It takes effort to carve out space in our busy schedules to practice our dependence on God, to remember our redemption by grace. It takes effort to set aside moments of stillness each week. It requires habitual practices and a community to practice them with. Uh, Judith writes about the God-given rules of the Sabbath. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. Sunday is not my day of rest. It's actually a long day of work, but for many of you, it can and should be your day of rest because With it comes a built-in rhythm of practices done within community as we worship together, remembering God's grace and creation and redemption. But there are plenty of other ways that we can prioritize this day of rest in our busy weeks. Uh, Setting your phone on silent can be a great, uh, great helpful practice. Think about it. The Sabbath is a declaration of liberation. We are set free by God's grace from all those things that seek to enslave us. For example, that buzzing phone, that nagging to-do list. We are not defined by what we do. And the Sabbath is a celebration of this truth. Spending less time in front of a screen and more time out in the world of God's creation can be a great habit to build into your Sabbath celebration. For me, the natural world reminds me that I'm just a small part of this big creation that God is sovereign over. Eugene Peterson, uh, the pastor and writer, defines Sabbath as a day to pray and to play, which I think is a wonderfully succinct way to to really focus in on what this day of rest can look like for us. It's a day to prioritize our relationships with God, one another, with creation. It's a day to pray with those we love and to celebrate our redemption in Christ. But it's also a day to take a break from our normal work activities and enter into the wonderful creative space of play. Play looks different for each person, Uh, The important thing is that it be an avocational activity, meaning activities you don't normally do for a living. If you typically work with your hands landscaping or outside, then working in the yard may not be the best activity on the Sabbath. But if you're usually stuck behind a screen, maybe getting your hands dirty out in the yard could be a great way to play among God's creation. For me, this looks like going on a hike or writing science fiction or perusing a bookstore, eating out at my favorite pizza spot. Um, Also, to step into the rest of the Sabbath, it's important to have unplanned and unstructured time during your day where you can simply think and feel what what may come, to sit in the presence of God. 
Now, if we were people who deeply and routinely entered into the gift of the Sabbath together, what ex an example we would be of the gospel to our busy city. In many ways, we're already doing this. Just coming here on Sunday goes against the, the rhythms of our neighbors and points to the deep truth that a day off from work is not enough. To enter into rest, there must also be a surrendering to the God who loves us. I, I know a member of our church who, who's tried to bring the importance of rest into his work week. He works remotely under a, an efficiency-minded manager of a startup, but he was arguing on behalf of his coworkers for a virtual water cooler break during the day where they could stop and get to know each other. Now, it may seem like a small thing, but it's a wonderful gesture that points to the reality that we are more than what we do. It points to the values of the Sabbath, that we are creatures under the Creator's care. Now, how might you bring the importance of rest into your workplace, into your home? God generously gave us the gift of the Sabbath. He built it into the very structure of creation. Let's enter into it with joy, with thanks. But simply practicing the Sabbath is not enough to enter into the deep rest that God has for us. The Pharisees are proof of that. You could be trying to practice the Sabbath to the best of your ability and, and still struggle to enter into the deep rest of the gospel. What we need more than anything is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who fulfills the Sabbath. Now, I, I know I've been ragging quite a bit on the Pharisees, but in a lot of ways, I do feel for them. Um, many of these religious teachers were not malicious. They weren't looking to make following God harder, but actually easier for the average person. They lived in occupied territory, their, their homeland ruled by an oppressive empire, but they remained faithful to God, um, faithful to God's laws, and when, they, when it would have been so easy to compromise. They put their hope in redemption, not in violence done against Rome, but in an act of God. In many ways, their teaching, it resembled Jesus more than anyone else during his earthly ministry. But like I said before, they lost the storyline of the Bible. And because of this, they missed the Savior they were waiting for. Now, the Apostle Paul, he says an amazing thing in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. He writes, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ, a shadow. What does it mean that the Sabbath is a shadow of Christ? Well, I believe Jesus actually explains this to his disciples later in the Gospel of Luke after his resurrection. He says in Luke 24, 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Now, by mentioning the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus was naming each section of the scriptures as it was divided in Jewish thought. What he was saying, what he was declaring, was that the Bible points to him, every part of it, every command, every story looks forward to Christ. Do you see what this means? It means that Jesus not only fulfilled the Sabbath by pointing back to its true meaning and purpose, but he fulfilled it in a more radical and in deeper sense, he fulfilled it because in his death and his resurrection, he won for us a rest that can never be taken away, 
A rest established not on our righteousness, but on his. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that is God, made the one who did not know sin, who is Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this one verse, it encapsulates, encapsulates the, the whole storyline of the Bible. God made us to be in perfect rest with him, where our work would not be drudgery but delight. But we lost that rest because we rebelled against God, choosing to depend on ourselves rather than our creator. This brought chaos into creation as all the fabric of the world started to unravel. Our relationship with God, one another, in all creation broken. But God was not finished with us. No, he, he made a plan to redeem all the world through, through one chosen people, from the lineage of one good king, through the one man and son of God, Jesus Christ. God didn't abandon his creation, but in Jesus, he came down and walked among us. In his perfect life, Jesus gave to the Father the humble obedience that we were always meant for. And he took our sin upon himself in his death on the cross, taking God's just punishment in our place. This is the great exchange of the cross, where for all those who put their faith in Jesus, he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness, gives us the stamp of, of God's approval on his perfect life. Jesus cried out as he died, it is finished. This was the cry of a victor winning salvation on our behalf. So in Jesus, we have the rest that the Sabbath promised and pointed to, the deep rest that quiets that inner murmur of self-reproach. Because if you are in Christ, God sees not your sin, not your mistakes, not your failings, but the righteousness of your Savior. In Jesus, God says over you what he said at the beginning, you are very good. We can be satisfied with our work because Jesus has completed the deeper work of our salvation and has won for us an identity as God's children based not on what we do or what we have done, but based on what has been done on our behalf by Jesus. To truly enter into the rest of the Sabbath, you must see that Jesus is our rest. And Jesus gives us the rest we need. There are two ways to reject God, but only one way to accept him. This is not through the religious response or the irreligious response, but the gospel response. The gospel means good news. Not good advice, but good news. This is how Christianity is different from every other religion or every other irreligious means to earn some sort of favor or salvation. It, it's, it's, Christianity speaks about not what we must do to find God or some sense of meaning and purpose, but it speaks to what has been done for us in the cross of Christ. Our hearts must be melted under the fire of God's love revealed in the cross of Christ. We must let the gospel argue with that inner voice of self-reproach. We must always be celebrating the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, beating that truth into our heads so that we might be motivated by the gospel in all that we do. You know, work in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. The, using our hands to bring, bring flourishing for others, to provide for our families is a good thing. That's why God put it in the Garden of Eden at the beginning when he commanded the first humans to go and, and care for and subdue and tend creation. But he also gave us the Sabbath, 
which helps keep work in its proper place. And now that we live in a fallen world, it protects against the troubles that come with work from the effects of sin and death. But it is only as you rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that you can practice the Sabbath as God always meant for it to be, a celebration of his grace. Jesus gives us the rest we need. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer, I invite you to enter into and embrace the rest of the gospel anew. It's so easy to fall back into a religious mindset. Come to Jesus this morning, not as the Pharisees, but as the broken man of our passage, humble and in need. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to perhaps hear this call for the first time. You know, work is, like I said, is a good thing. It's something, it's in it we can find meaning and purpose. We can use our gifts to, to bring the flourishing of others and ourselves. But work will never be enough. Jesus, he is enough. He is all you need. Where work will fail us and long vacations come to an end, the love of God in Christ is never ending or failing. Come and see that Jesus gives us the rest we need. And this is what it looks like to come to the table. Communion is a celebration of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus and the new creation we have in Jesus by the Spirit. It, it's, but it's also an anticipation of what Jesus will do when he comes again to restore all things, to bring rest for the weary, healing for the broken, wholeness for the hurting. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and, and take of the bread which represents his body given for us. If you're, and to take of the juice, which represents his body or his blood shed for us. If, if you're here and you're not a believer, I do ask you to refrain from taking of this meal. But as God's people take of it together, would you consider the love of God for you? Would you consider what it might look like to come and find the rest that your heart longs for? Let's pray. And then, then uh, you can come as the song starts and, and take of the bread and juice here. Thank you. Father God, we thank you so, so much that you created us and, and you see us as good, that you created us and you gave us this wonderful gift of rest along with this wonderful gift of work and that together they become a, a, a great rhythm, Lord, where we can celebrate the, the gifts of all this world. But most of all, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in our place to, to bring forgiveness for our sins in his perfect life and his sacrificial death. That because of him, we don't have to prove our worth, but, but you have given us his righteousness as we put our faith in Jesus. And I pray that for each one of us who know you and love you, Lord God, that we would just rest in the truth of that, that in that gospel truth this morning. And as we go from this place, we would live it out in the, all that we do. In your name we pray, amen.